Welcome to a world of fragile truths, where we bring the latest security and rule of law research to life that shake our fragile assumptions. I'm Christian Kuytet from the knowledge platform Security and Rule of Law, and as always, we have two guests from different parts within the sector that will undoubtedly breach each other's silos. We have uh, Pablo Jangua, consultant uh, on topics like resources management and uh, a former researcher. And we have Anna Gauwenberg, learning advisor at the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs. We'll go a bit meta today as we'll discuss evidence or maybe the lack actually of that evidence for whether new evidence and knowledge actually leads to new policies and institutional change within our sector. So Pablo wrote a paper that can, um, that can be found, of course, in the description, which states that the huge investments made by the development sector in uh, M&E and learning might not have been the best value for money uh, as political motivations, accountability, personal judgment, all these uh, tendencies uh, still uh, drive our decisions. And they will discuss how um, institutional learning currently takes place and whether we do see some good examples out there. So thank you both for joining the conversation, Anna and Pablo. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Of course. We, uh, we always ask our, our guests to quickly introduce themselves. So let's start with you then, Pablo. What should we know about you first? What's your, your background? I am a political scientist by training and a recovering academic. <laughs> uh, occasionally, I still do some research, but primarily I work in implementation, advising governance and anti-corruption projects and um, working on learning with implementing and advocacy organizations. And what about you, Anna? Um, I work at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs at the Stabilization and Humanitarian Aid Department, um, where I'm learning advisor. And we're working on strengthening evidence-based policymaking, uh, learning, monitoring, evaluation, and learning in general, but also facilitating um, a learning culture mm. within our department. Right. So you have some, some first-hand experiences uh, with the practices that Pablo describes in this paper. What, uh, what do you recognize most? Um, I think what I recognize most is actually the barriers that he describes around culture within the organization that might hamper uh, learning or at least provide um, serious barriers for learning uh, within the organization and also the relationship between learning and organizational change. I, I find it's an interesting angle to, to this entire topic. And also I think it's uh, interesting to explore a little bit further together like you, you mentioned quite some barriers, and I'm, w I'm wondering whether you also have ideas about uh, how to overcome mm -hmm. those, um, because I'm always triggered by barriers and, and see them also as an opportunity for change. Well, that's, that's a good challenge for you, uh, uh, Pablo. And it's uh, also good, of course, that you apparently reflect well what, uh, what Anna's reality is. Um, was there more reason to write this paper in 2021 as you did than in maybe 2010? Yes, the main reason was that by 2021, I already had some experience working inside the implementation and with organizations. When I started uh, looking into topics of international development, foreign aid and, and development organizations, it was from a very academic perspective. I, I found them very inscrutable from the outside, quite opaque. But once you start working in implementation, you start getting most of the real story of how things happen. And you start seeing some patterns in practice and even in your own behavior. Uh, and one of the things that fascinated me was the fact that we as individuals are generally very inquisitive and curious and very open to learning. 
And the goals that we set for ourselves are very lofty and based on evidence and reflection. And yet the organizations that we inhabit are often the complete opposite. They, they very much thrive on uh, some degree of falsification, some degree of opacity, and a, and a, cal- and a selectiveness with sharing evidence. Oh, that's uh, at least a very positive uh, image uh, of, uh, of us as colleagues, but maybe not of us uh, in, a, in a system. What, what are then the most urgent messages in the paper that you, that you would like to point out? I think what's really striking for me from this review that I conducted, which was not a, a very thorough, rigorous um, scientific review, it was very quick, but it was, the messages were very consistent that practitioners indeed do learn. And I think they learn a lot from each other. They learn a lot through their personal networks, through their professional networks. But that organizations in international development, in rule of law, stability, are not set up to translate that individual learning into collective learning. So we struggle to actually make the most of the people who pass through these organizations. And there's a risk that when people change jobs or they move to a different country or they move to a different organization, that their acquired knowledge will simply be lost. So we learn, but not collectively. Do you agree, Anna? Mm, to a certain extent, yes. Um, I, uh, I recognize this uh, image of, of the, the moving parts within the organization and intrinsic um, motivation for um, knowledge and learning uh, within, uh, within individuals. But also, I think, if I look at our own organization, we're putting quite some efforts now in, in learning in any event and also collective learning. And we've been doing, yeah, we've been doing that for a while with you guys, for example, Christian, with the Knowledge Platform. Can you remember a moment where where that was of use? Yes, I think it has been influential in the way in which we deal with uh, informal uh, justice and security provision, for example, thinking around that. And um, if we look at the way in which um, our thinking about reconstruction, for example, and um, um, there's a, ke- a clear influence, I think, of uh, what the knowledge platform did and what, what type of discussions we've been having there with, with our partners in even developing um, the security and rule of law theory of change and revising mm-hmm. that as well. Pablo, um, these are then a few examples, but you mentioned that there are barriers that b- hinder these kinds of evidence influences, let's say. Um, what are those? So, for instance, we have um, not. Let me say first of all that not all organizations are the same. Um, you know, not all funders are the same. Not all implementers are the same. But in general, for instance, we we have a a culture that doesn't deal very well with failure, even though we're dealing with problems that most of the time are very difficult to tackle and are not going to be solved in a matter of years. Right? These are fundamental state-building problems that will require generations to come to fruition. And yet we we set ourselves up to fail by saying, here's a three-year project. Okay, so if I want my unit or my company or my NGO to continue to exist, I need this three-year project to succeed. And everybody has sort of an incentive to over-promise and over narrate the, the the good side of things without necessarily going into the details of when things do not work mm-hmm. and and that's what i think is a very interesting paradox that 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 sort of that's an incentive structure that is external to our organizations but it becomes part of the culture sometimes management requires results 
uh, the boards want to see progress. And you know, if if in some organizations, uh, certainly not yours, Anna, but in others, where career advancement may depend on your ability to, you know, get pumped money out of the door or attract funding, then you have an incentive, a personal incentive, to not really deal with failure mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and to consider only successes. And I think that's a, that's one of the main barriers that we encounter. And yeah. then, oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, no, I recognize this very this very much, and I wonder whether whether you have you have any ideas like yeah it's almost like a psychological um component of learning and um building a safe space in which you in which you're allowed to feel in which you're allowed to bring in things that didn't went well as a case for joint learning i wonder whether whether you can say a little bit more about what 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 are the conditions then for for creating this space if i look at the way in which we work there's also a tendency to, you know, to not delve into this mm. too much. And we have this uh, conversation within uh, uh, the realm of the knowledge platform, for example. They also are trying to create this safe space between partners and us. But even within the own organization, all of the organizations involved are struggling with this issue internally as well. It's always a bit of a trade-off uh, I've uh, experienced because you want uh, all different stakeholders in the room to have an open discussion. But of course, the broader you make that room, the more also um, uh, interests will will be into that room. Yeah, I think if the the minute you have an organization, um, Anna, like like it sounds, you're speaking about yours, where this challenge is acknowledged, I think that puts you ahead of the pack. There's a few things, a few problems that you need to overcome in the first instance to actually get over this problem of acknowledging failure. Um, one would be making sure that everybody knows that reflecting and learning, it's everybody's job. It's not the job of the, quote, learning people. That is not always easy because people are hired based on expertise or they're experts working in a field. Many senior experts don't like to be challenged on their, their you know long-held beliefs, for instance. Another thing that I think would be crucial as a first step is for management and leadership to demonstrate the path. And it's much easier for staff in an organization to be open about what they think works and what doesn't work if they see their boss saying, Mm -hmm. I got it wrong in this case, or what do you guys think we should be doing differently? And you've you've done some some research on that, obviously. Have you seen cases where uh, this has gone right or cases where you've seen that actually there was a lot of knowledge and evidence and lessons created, but it didn't uh, really, it wasn't taken up? I see a lot of this happening within small communities of people who work together over a long period of time. Uh, For instance, in, in one case, I've been lucky to be working with roughly the same team of specialists for uh, six years now. And I've been always the nagging one, asking them to reflect, asking them, you know, to reconsider their their assumptions. By now, they're used to it. They've internalized that way of asking questions. But I remember that one colleague uh, once apologized to me because he he wanted to punch me in the face for for asking him to, you know, why he thought he was right about the the line of support that that he was advocating. And it, it takes that sort of trust building, I think, to get teams of people to overcome this. Uh, and I think also um, there's funders, representatives of funders who, who become very involved in implementation and who gain the trust of the implementing teams. And 
those can be the best uh, funders that you can imagine because they actually engage you in critical conversations about what works and what doesn't work. Yeah, have you seen, uh, well, a punch in the face uh, kind of anecdote is hard to top, but uh, <laughs> have you seen a good uh, good partnerships, uh, Anna, that, that really do approach it uh, this way uh, so uh, lessons are taken up? In any event, I think what we're trying to do is to to have this conversation with partners. Obviously, we don't always have the yeah, time and availability to, to spend. We're dealing both with um, policy influencing as well as programming. Um, and that's, that makes that the time and effort required for this might not always be there, uh, honestly. But, um, yeah. but we're, we're making an effort... Well, maybe then indeed before the before the break, what there's so many indeed uh, evaluations and researches out there, but there's as Anna says a very limited time. What do you think, uh, Pablo? How do you how do you deal with all these evaluations and researches on all these specific topics? <laughs> Where do you start? Uh, I've worked at a research center funded by a donor, and and I've implemented programs um, funded by that same donor in the same country, in the same sector, and those two never spoke to one another, right? It was fascinating to see how one hand commissioned research on, on a topic, but the country office actually never knew that that research had, had been commissioned or had been done. So are there any systems that you can build to make sure that there's a feedback loop, right, between what's commissioned centrally and what's done uh, in project or in programs? Yeah, it's um it's a challenge obviously, but um what we're trying to do is uh, develop a learning agenda, a thematic learning agenda, um which actually builds on the um, the assumptions underlying our theory of change, and in that way, hopefully, uh, um, translating those to learning questions as a basis for the learning that you do with the partners in programming, but also the learning that you do with organizations such as the Knowledge Platform or other researchers that we work with. So really, really being aware of where your gaps are and uh, and structurally uh, gaining uh, more information on uh, wh what can be improved. What what happens if you don't do that, uh, and who does it affect? So I'll give you an example from um, one of the countries that I've worked on for years has been Ghana, and. Ghana has a very, very active civil society, many very, very qualified and capable reformers who've invested their whole lives and reputation in advancing certain reform agendas. And at times, there, has been, there have been representatives of the international community who've actively funded and supported these efforts. But what's happened over time as well is that those kinds of support arose because of a, oftentimes a single individual at an embassy would take up an issue and would, would actually read up and learn about how to do things and they would want to actively support these partners and they design really interesting programs and they provide really proactive support mm -hmm. and then they move to another country office yeah. and suddenly that same donor is not providing the same level of support. That three or five year program is over, the knowledge base of the embassy sort of gets reorganized around the new staff but the local partners are the same the local partners are still there and they're still going to be trying to do this forever 
and, and what they're faced with is inconsistency on our part, inconsistency uh, in terms of international support because the, there was nothing like the processes that Anna is talking about, about a learning agenda that everybody agrees on and that helps to organize knowledge. Absent that, the international presence is inconsistent. And in some cases, that inconsistent, I think, can be quite benign and predictable. It's a chore, but nothing more than that. But as you move into more difficult contexts, more dangerous contexts, inconsistency can really put people at risk when people come to depend on international support or international partnerships and they see themselves abandoned overnight. Yeah. So we have uh, a duty to be consistent and to uh, take up all the years of experience that have been done with these partners that uh, uh, are trying to uh, work uh, with their communities. Yeah, that's a very clear message. Let's go out for uh, a little break and then uh, talk more about what we can do about this and uh, how we can actually uh, prevent that from happening. And now a few words from our listeners that share the fragile truth they think need replacement. I think a critical fragile truth in our sector is the fact that inclusive peace and uh, sustainable development in fragile and conflict-affected settings cannot happen if we in the global north are unwilling to critically look at the power dynamics and especially our own share in that. Putting local actors in the driver's seat and have them partake from the very beginning in every design, as well as decision-making process, is crucial in creating lasting solutions. We work a lot in, the, in countries with, you know, we identify champions to, to take forward a process, champions of change, which is great. But I think we also have to remember that to be a champion in, 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 in a country, you often have to have come from a privileged background. And therefore, actually, the, the people that, whose voices we really want to integrate into deciding on how to address their own security concerns, these aren't the champions. These are the people who are left out of the process. So we need to change the way that we're looking at local ownership. We need to invest a lot more into being able to work in such a way that we can encourage those, voice, those voices to be part of decision making uh, into you know, how we provide um, support to, uh, to, to national processes. Welcome back. Yes, so nice to hear from you uh, listeners. Don't forget to uh, send your own uh, short voice notes of a fragile truth to the address in this description. Now let's, uh, let's talk a bit more about examples of how it does work in the, in the right way, because you just explained some of the, of the dangers, but do you also have examples of where learning did actually lead to better results? There are many projects or an increasing number of projects that are actually trying to incorporate learning explicitly into their operations by allocating resources to learning-focused staff like M&E specialists or by commissioning analysis, not just at the beginning during the design stage, but throughout the implementation. Uh, I've seen projects that, that set aside some budget for an independent external evaluation, which I think is extremely valuable for overcoming some, some biases. And in general, the designs of those tenders or bids from funders that I'm familiar with, I think have improved in that sense. I think they, they have included much more acknowledgement of complexity, much more acknowledgement of the need to respond to context, and, and a willingness to, to invest in these learning side, right, which is really costly and, and actually kind of an overhead. And then on the organizational side, uh, in USAID, for instance, there was a dedicated effort to to build learning into programming through the collaborating learning and adapting approach, which has generated very, very compelling feedback processes between generating evidence, 
adjusting your program implementation and then sharing your lessons with other programs. Could you elaborate on that a little bit, perhaps? Like, what does that look like? So what that looks like is a set of common methodologies or approaches that, that I think, from my standpoint, generate shared expectations about what kind of questions do you need to ask and what kind of evidence would support those questions. And then once you have the evidence, what do you do with it? And these are questions that, that seem very intuitive and basic, but they don't actually come naturally to everybody or not everybody has time in their day jobs to actually ask these questions. So I think by providing templates, guidance and support uh, and, a, and a general knowledge environment that makes it easier for people to engage. I wonder, Anna, if you know, you've know you seen something similar with the knowledge platform. Do you manage to, to make it easier for for your team members, organization staff, to actually talk to one another, reflect on these shared yeah, questions? Yeah, it's something we're also working on currently, actually. Um, but I think um, already acknowledging that this is important and also uh, providing time and space for it is already making a huge difference. So um, what you see happening is you know, external experts, for example, are uh, being invited to discuss a certain topic or we start exploring issues a little bit more in depth. Um, but also um, organizations like the platform I mentioned already, but we have quite some uh, research partnerships where we collaborate quite closely with researchers. And what you see is that when researchers know the way in which we work, uh, they're quite closely aligned to what we're doing and knowledgeable about our processes and procedures, then it's really of added value uh, what they bring to us. So as long as we know what we're asking and we're perhaps even supported in, in, in uh, designing the right questions and they can respond to those direct questions, um, you see that it immediately becomes much more useful for us. And, well, Christian himself is actually a good example of someone uh, who works at the Knowledge Platform, but is seconded with the ministry for one day a week, I think, Christian, right? Um, for him to actually be better aligned to what we're doing and being able to uh, to use that in the work that he's doing within the, the knowledge platform. Yeah, and I've definitely also seen that it has been prioritized way more and there is more space to take initiatives uh, and it is supported. But then, uh, as you say, uh, Pablo, it is quite difficult, those basic, maybe intuitive questions, <laughs> but how do you really, really do that? How do you formulate a question or even identify it? And also, researchers and policymakers just talk a very different language. I think you discussed that as well in your paper, Pablo, about you call it, uh, in, I think, internal learning and external learning. Um, yes, I, th I think uh, I was very happy to hear what Anna said about inviting researchers in, because for years I worked as a effectively as a donor-funded researcher, but without really knowing what were the ways in which research would be the most useful. Now, on the academic side, you always want to uh, aspire to the standards of scientific uh, proof and scientific method. But there has to be a way of staying committed and true to that spirit 
and still thinking about what do practitioners actually need in practice. And that's, for some researchers, that doesn't come naturally, right? Like you ask them, you know, what can you tell us about state building? And they will say something like, war creates states and states make war. Yes, but that's over hundreds of years, right? That's not, we're not asking here about the French Revolution. What we're asking here is what sort of state building interventions could be useful as foundational steps in a country, right? Like, um, well, no. Not now, but Afghanistan before, or Libya, or, or DRC. And I think researchers are not often aware of these questions. And even when they're somehow somewhat aware, they're not willing to use that as a constraint in how they do their research, because they think it's limiting, it's, you know, it's not really real research. So I think any kind of communication and exchange, actually, between the academic side and the practitioner side, incredibly valuable, and it's a, it's a fantastic step. And are there other um, things that you really want to uh, communicate to Anna um, that we haven't discussed yet? Well, another thing that she mentioned that I, that I, I would actually like to hear more about is uh, their use of a, of a theory of change that has that is oriented towards learning and, and reflecting because this is something that is lacking in many organizations um, monitoring and evaluation practitioner practitioners are very aware of the theory of change methodology but consistently i think they're disappointed at how it's applied in practice it's sort of done as a one-off thing that you have to do at the beginning of a of an intervention to justify your choices when in fact it can be an incredibly powerful tool for uh, strategic thinking yeah. and organizational management can you do that in a, in a bit of a quick way as we're running out of time mm, yeah well yeah so i see the I, I see the theory of change as as a sort of organizing tool as well for learning because yeah you need some sort of organizing factor right for learning otherwise you'll just yeah you you'll learn a lot <laughs> but but perhaps not together yeah so this, this theory of change uh, and structuring those learning questions is one of the next steps. Uh, and is th are there other next steps that you've identified now after this conversation, well, after reading I'd the I'd really like to learn a little bit more from this USAID program because it's, um, it resonates very well with me and uh, the things that I've been researching for our department as well. I'd also like to delve a little bit more into this um, connection between learning and broader change but just you know to practically work on this and to make sure that you're starting to change behaviors and to facilitate uh, the way in which people interact with each other start um, asking those difficult questions to each other provide feedback to each other mm. and that's sort of um, unexplored territory in relation to um learning from our programming and sort of evidence-based policy making. Do you have any last uh, recommendations, Paolo, for Anna in her, uh, her quest for this, uh, this, <laughs> this more change-oriented uh, uh, focus? Well, the, the only one actual recommendation is that learning is part of change management. You cannot add learning mm -hmm. as, a, as an afterthought or as an add-on to an organization. Either you integrate it in the core business or you don't. And this is something that maybe has to be explained to leadership within the organization or to stakeholders who, who value this organization. But beyond that, um, what I love about organizations like Anna's and others that I work with is that there is no map. 
you you have to to make it up as you go and and that's not a bad thing right that means that you're on the cutting edge of of innovation and i think it's not a bad place to be well that's uh a very nice uh, ending to it and uh well as a knowledge platform i can only uh, subscribe that uh, that message of course it's a wrap i love the, the interaction you uh, you brought to this episode so thank you and uh, i hope to encounter you of course again with uh, with other knowledge platform uh, events or uh, initiatives and our listeners too of course thank you for listening i i know you'll keep hunting down those those fragile truths every day so we'll bring some more examples of that in the next episode 